The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. We have interviewed hundreds of people on this show over the past decade. Some were legends, while others were just beginning their careers. But what they all have had in common is this idea, this dream, that they wanted a life that revolved around photography. And as you have likely heard on many episodes, their success, in whatever form that took, often came as a result of putting in the time, doing the work, and putting it out there. I'm sure that every single one of them had an excuse as to why they might not succeed, but that didn't stop them. They may not have felt ready or confident, or maybe they felt they didn't even know what the hell they were doing. A lot of people describe luck or talent as the sole reason why many photographers have achieved what they have. I like to think that these people chose not to believe the lies that came in the form of excuses. They were trying to convince them that those dreams were not meant for them, but for someone else. Anna Gunn is a photographer who has likely heard a lot of excuses as to why she shouldn't be doing what she's doing. I mean, it was crazy to leave the UK to start a business in a new relationship in a foreign country whose culture and language she was barely familiar with. She's even crazier believing that she could create a photo festival with famous photographers while having never put together such a large event in her life. But she has and she is. But I think I like that kind of crazy because it reminds me that what's impossible for others doesn't have to be impossible for me. Well, Anna, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really pleased to, to have you on the show. No, well, thank you very much for having me. Your life didn't start in Portugal, if, if you oh, picked, no. up, picked up on that just based on the accent. Uh, <laughs> you could tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you, you started life in the UK. So tell us about your career back then. What were you, what were you doing before you transitioned to what you're doing now in Portugal? Oh, gosh. Um, I think my, my career has been a little bit of a, a chameleon. It has changed throughout the years. So I started, I started actually in aerospace manufacturing engineering and I finished my degree in Bristol in the UK. And the year I finished was actually the year after September the 11th had happened in the US. So of course, the aerospace industry had crashed. There were people who were alongside me for job interviews who had been doing the job 25 years plus, but had been fired the year before. Um, so getting a job there was really, really tough. And I found myself in insurance. And it was funny because it was only going to be a temp job working as a legal secretary. But 
um, when they found out my background, I started brokering and they, they put me in the, a broker position and heading up new business because I could talk to engineers and the, the companies and find out about the company's risk and then talk to the insurers and be able to broker those deals. But in an office of nine to five, I looked around and realized nobody else there was saying, when I was five, I wanted to be in insurance. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it seemed to be like the place that, you know, I, I don't want to degrade anybody else in insurance, but for me at that time, it seemed like that office was a place where dreams came to die. Yeah. And I was not about to let that happen. So I started looking around again for some, you know, for some inspiration and some spark back in my life. And I actually took on um, a theatre lighting course in Bristol. And it was a two-week course, and it just filled me with awe that you could play with light on a stage, and it would make everything look pretty and wonderful and create such fantasy worlds. And so I booked myself on a, another course in London. How did, how did you find out about the lighting course? Because it seems like such a... Uh, such a small niche that to even find out about it, it seems like it would be just <laughs> I love how life works like this but um, a friend of mine who I was alongside in my degree because um, a lot of the engineering degrees whether you're in sound engineering aerospace or mechanical they all start on the first year pretty much the same way um, and I was alongside my colleagues who were doing sound engineering and so they were off working in nightclubs. And oh, okay. when they were telling me that this lighting thing was actually a job and that I could find out a course about it, and they were telling me some great places to look. And that's, that kind of put me into a, oh, let me, let me go take a look at that. So that, that's kind of how it, it twisted into that. But the course in London I went to, it was supposed to be two weeks. At the end of the two weeks... I, I went to, it was the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and at the end of two weeks, the instructor there said to me, you know that we do a two-year place, uh, a course here, um, and if you wanted, we can get you a fast-track interview. And I kind of sat back and went, yes, thank you, I'll take that, <laughs> without realising what I had just said. And I, I did this interview with the director, he said yes, I then phoned my boss and said to him, okay, I am now giving you my month's notice. Um, I then went back to the friend that I was staying with in London, sat on the porch outside and cried because I realized that I had just given up a well-paid job with health benefits and all the rest of it for some crazy dream um, that I knew that I was going to have to move to London and start all over again. And I knew that I didn't have a choice. Because it was exactly what I needed to do. So you didn't have that emotional reaction before you gave your notice. It was only immediately afterwards that you realized, <laughs> oh, my God, I just did something. I think the momentum had carried me through to that point. And then it was all came crashing in of, do you realize what you have just done? Um, I think that this is a theme throughout my life. <laughs> Where momentum carries you until you realize, oh, well, okay, now it's all done. Was there, was there a particular moment when you were, you know, where you were learning it, when you were actually, you know, practicing it, where you realized, wow, this is, this is it for me? You know, that sort of just was the catalyst or, or was it a more sort of gradual buildup? Oh, uh, you know, yeah, it's, 
I think there were several points in that week, you know, where we were in that theatre is a very old theatre and it um, it's now, it's no longer there anymore, it's a training theatre or was and it was just down the street, uh, a famous street in London and everything about it screamed family. You walked into the theatre and you were part of this family. On the back wall of the stage of the fly wall where they fly in all of the lights was a graffiti wall where everybody who passed through those doors had left their little mark on this wall. And when I looked at that wall, it, it was an instant recognition of what this place was. It was home. Hmm. And I think that was what drew me in that I could be part of this family doing something that was incredible. You know, the, the lighting aspect and the sound aspect were, were fantastic, but it was, it was the full encompassment of everything all at the same time, at the same place for me that really made me... It, was a no, it wasn't a choice. It was, this is what I, I need to do. So literally, that's, that's what, what happened. I then went through this two-year course, which was phenomenal. In that time, I then met my now husband, who is Portuguese. And so, obviously, 21st century uh, (laughs) um, love affair, really, over Skype and met through a a mutual interest in motorbikes, actually. (laughs) And uh, I then came over here to meet him, and that was it. So that was, I had to then move to Portugal. (laughs) <laughs> and I was on tour at the time I had finished the course I'd been out touring and so we had it all set up we had the idea of okay so we can make this work I can still tour I can live in Portugal fly back to London carry on doing this this dream and that's how we we planned it however <laughs> the best laid plans never ever work <laughs> So what happened is I moved to Portugal, we bought all of my stuff here and the tour that I was due to start back on, um, they cancelled my contract. So I was uh, here and I had no work and I was based here. And so I kind of had to look around and, and start all over again. And that was terrifying, I think. And some of the worst years of my life, if I'm all honest with 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 what went on it was hugely difficult to learn a language and to start all over again and it was in that time that Philippe and I uh, my husband we traveled up and down Portugal and we traveled with his camera which I then stole (laughs) and wouldn't let him have it back Um, in fact on my birthday he actually had to buy me another camera so he could have his back And we travelled Portugal getting to know this country through the camera. And I realised that through the lens of that camera that a lot of the skills that I had learned through lighting I were transferable skills. The storytelling of the theatre were transferable skills for me. And I learned the, the technical of the camera very quickly. Fortunately, Philippe is a, is a great instructor and because the two of us were learning alongside of each other, we pushed each other to learn. And we brought our photography then from the outside back into the studio. So when we got home, we then started building up you know, studio strobes. You go the DIY route first and then you, you build up your studio to get uh, some lights and then you know you get some really dramatic lights in and then you start 
start down that path of accruing gear (laughs) to play and to to learn more and in that time it was a thirst for knowledge of going out there and searching for all of the information I could about the Grand Masters, how to light, how to get a mentor, the online courses that were going on at the time, and the huge resource that is the internet. I love the internet. And it was just a massive source of education that was able to be accessible to us. And so we took all of the online courses we could and we got ourselves onto mental programs and uh, we just built our photography up from there and then started our company here, um, McGunn Media, and started building up a business. I, I, want, I want to talk to you more about that business, but I kind of want to go back to that moment of transition because I think I, I really want to hear more about that because I think that, you know, when people lose a gig, it, it can be sort of dramatic because they have a certain level of expectation of income and what their lifestyle is going to be. And when that changes, that can really throw people off kilter. But then you throw into into the mix the fact that you're in a foreign country, you <laughs> don't speak the language, and you're building a life with someone else, right? Right. And so you're having to sort of get to know them and, and, and live with them. <laughs> you may not have had to do that before. And on top of that, there's cultural differences between the two of you. Oh, so it's yes. like there's a lot of stuff that was going yeah. on with you. And how did you sort of deal with undoubtedly moments sort of depression, self-doubt, anxiety, to be able to sort of push through and not get overwhelmed by the situations that were your life at that point? What what helped you get get through that and move forward? Oh, there's so much in there, actually. Um, just taking the word culture there that you, you were saying, the culture differences, Before I moved to Portugal, I think if somebody had said the word culture to me, I would have understood it as, oh, yes, different cultures mean a different language, a different music, different theatre. What I didn't understand about culture differences is the differences in the way people speak and think and act. It's this how they think part that is, I, I felt like, I was so naive, I had no idea that this component of anything existed. And I feel like perhaps I was, uh, yeah, uneducated, uh, I think is, is, and I'm not doing myself an injustice there, it's, it's the truth of that situation. I found myself in having to learn a lot of information very quickly. F- fortunately for me, I had a, a, an enormous support system here. I had Philippe, who supported this whole entire process, and his family, which was great because they loved having an English person in their family. The first thing Philippe's mum did was take me into town and show me all the art shops, show me all of the crafts, show me everything that I would need that she thought would interest me. And it was with huge pride that she showed me all the coffee places and all of the places that she loved. And that, that gave me um, an enthusiasm for the city and, and looking at the city in that really upbeat pride. Through the moments that were difficult, I think the, the, the enormous uh, frustrations of a language bring 
not just floods of overwhelming, oh, why can't you all understand me? But <laughs> it, it also allows for this, oh, this is going to be such a funny story next week. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me an example of, of, of just such a situation that you remember? Oh, my gosh, I had so many. But there, there was one in particular that made me so embarrassed. I had taken a, a belt buckle to go and get uh, an extra hole made in the belt buckle here. The, there's a lovely old cobbler's. And you have to take things into specific shops here. They, they have one, one particular shop will do one trade. It is, is there still the old trades that go on. So you take your belt buckle into the cobbler. And I was really proud that I had gone in there with this belt and I had asked him to, to just put one extra hole. And he, uh, responded to me when I had asked how much that was. He said to me, I can't remember the exact phrase, but all I heard from the phrase was gratish which is free. And I thought, oh, he's done that for free. It just took him five seconds. That's really great. Oh, thank you very much. And I picked up the belt and I walked out the shop. And then I called Philippe and I said, this lovely cobbler, we have to do something for him. He's just done this for free. And Philippe said, hang on, um, just repeat the phrase that he said to me. <laughs> so I repeated it because I could remember it straight away. And he said, no, he's just said that you just need to give him a little something for coffee. And oh, my wow. face went bright red and I realized that uh, with huge embarrassment that I had walked out the shop without paying for something <laughs> so that was I, I then went to the the shop the the shopping mall bought a bag of coffee went back into the shop gave him the bag of coffee and a chocolate bar and paid for my belt and said I'm very very sorry this is this is for you I'm very very sorry and of course the the, the cobbler was absolutely laughing he was doubled over in hysterics but being typically British I was very red, incredibly <laughs> embarrassed, and ran out of the shop, and I've never returned to that oh. shop since. <laughs> That's a great story. But, but that, that just speaks to the whole idea that when you are, you know, making the choice not only to live in another country, but to do business in another country, where communication is so crucial to the success of you being able to serve as a client, that it's just ripe for miscommunication, misunderstanding, and how much more careful you have to be. T talk about the process of being able to not only sort of communicate, but also to be able to sort of negotiate, you know, what you want, what they need in a completely foreign land where, that, where you're, you're in the process of learning how to live, live out a life. Right. And, and I'm going to own it here. I am, I'm nowhere near where I need to be with the language. I think it, it, it will probably take me a few more years for that. The language here is incredibly rich. And because of the older generation, they have phrases amongst themselves that if you translate word for word directly, it isn't always what it is just as a direct translation. <laughs> you know, they have a, they have a phrase, um, is monkeys in the head. <laughs> it means to be crazy. So if you translate it directly, monkeys on the head, you think, what, what is this? It's exactly like uh, English uh, phrases of, you know, that his, his cheese has slid off his cracker. Um, <laughs> but, but there are, there are colloquialisms that when you translate directly don't work. So in in dealing with people, I have learned here firstly 
uh, culturally, voicemail does not work. It does not exist here. Um, so if you call somebody on the phone, if they miss the call, they will call you back and they will then ask who you are because when people pick up the phone, they don't automatically tell you who they are. Mm-hmm. And emails are not something that are responded to uh, unless you are a company. So dealing with individuals here as a culture in general, things are done face to face. And I have to say for me, with the, the language, it's far easier and for me nicer to go to somebody and sit in front of them and make sure that we both understand each other and finish meetings that will normally be over coffee. Everything is done over coffee or lunch here, over a couple of hours as well. And the communication then is much easier for me. And it also makes sure that I have that connection with the person. Because once you have a connection here, it's all about trust. They won't do anything without trust. Mm. And Portuguese are based very much family, loyalty and trust. And that's how, how business is built here. So nothing happens straight out of the gate. Everything needs to be built up. But once you've got that support, it's it's a phenomenal family to be be part of can you give me an example of negotiating like a a deal or a contract with someone as opposed to doing it in the uk and doing it in portugal something that you learn that you go okay i can't do it the way that i used to and i have to do it this thing this particular way is there something you can point your finger to with respect to that (laughs) oh all the time all the time um contracts are, are something that are probably done far later in a business process than would ordinarily be done in the UK. If here, contracts are are probably way down the line, you've already negotiated everything and everything and you've already started probably collecting your models and and on the way to the location before contracts are are signed. Yeah, and unless you're doing it for a a big company, the the smaller companies, they, they don't do contracts. Um, you will probably be on the set and say, okay, uh, you all need to sign these model releases. But at the same time, this is changing. The, the culture is developing very quickly here. So, um, and changes are, are happening very, very fast. But yeah, this, everything happens as a gentleman's agreement. And so you are, that's why the trust is so important and why it takes so much time to build up because Signing contracts is something that um, that people don't like doing here, and they're a little bit suspicious of. So, so that becomes quite interesting when we have models or people walking through the door, and you're asking them to sign contracts. You have to very carefully explain to them, this isn't just for us; it's for your protection as well. So that's that's one example. Well, tell us. Uh, you, you mentioned models. Why don't you describe to us what your what your business started off being in terms of a photographic business and what it's evolved into? Well, I, it's funny because when we started, I think we were photographing outside, and so we were selling images of Porto to the outside. And then we came into the studio and started building up uh, contacts. And because of the trust, again, it's it. Things happen word of mouth here. And so you get clients and you get more clients based on word of mouth. And so we would find that we would perhaps have to do all sorts of uh, studio work, even um, newborn photography. 
and you would take uh, a family, they'd come into your studio and you would do that session and by the end of it, the, the whole family would be thrilled with you and then they would leave and then the next week they would say, do you know that my cousin has this wine that he's just um, putting out there in this little farm, uh, a quinta in Adoro, would you be available to shoot the wine? <laughs> so it's, it's funny how those relationships really mattered um, to build up into a commercial world or to take uh, the commercial jobs. You needed to kind of know the family first mm -hmm. and to get those sorts of jobs and build up into the family. So for us, we've very much kept the doors open for all sorts of photography that could happen. I think the only, the only things we've said is absolutely no, no event photography, nothing outside of the studio where weddings or large events happen because we've seen, <laughs> we've seen what skill and mastery I, and I applaud everyone who does weddings. But that is something that I feel is, is not within our wheelhouse. So we've kept very much into, if I can control it in the studio, I'm very happy. <laughs> so you, you and your husband both serve as photographers in the business. That's right. Yes. I think because we both learned at the same time, we pushed each other through, through the beginning years. And our progress, I think, was, well, I, I feel like our progress was fast-tracked because of that. And I feel that it had this beautiful dynamic because Philippe is so technical. He will read manuals. He will read everything he can technically. And then you have me where I will say to him, show me what you've learned. And if he can show it to me with the camera in his hand, I will learn, learn it instantly um, because I'm a visual learner. And so because of that dynamic, both of us were learning at a pace that was, and he was teaching me and I was teaching him the concepts. So then it kind of went back around. So we both learned in this beautiful figure of eight, really. And that, that kind of helped us push our skill level up. And in the studio now, it's funny, people, our clients come in and they say, you have this language between you where you don't talk, but you both know what, what it is you're doing. <laughs> and I think they're probably right. You know, we both know what we're looking for. And so I will now perhaps shoot more than he does and he will do more of the lighting and setups. So we, we kind of work off each other like that. Is there something that he has a special affinity for in terms of subject matter and genre and that you have for yourself? Oh my gosh, if you, if you are a musician and you bring your instrument into our studio, that is Philippe. He, he is so happy. He has, he, he loves guitars. He loves musicians. Uh, and that's, that's him. That's, that is totally where he, he's most happiest. If you come to me and you would like some crazy concepts put together or you've got a product that you, you want to showcase in a different way, that's me. I love, I love putting those concepts together. So those, those are kind of like our wheelhouses. <laughs> you know, a big part of, you know, starting a business and running a business is sort of having a, a network of other photographers and you know, having a community of other sort of like-minded uh, people that can you can network with that you can get information from you know basically a, a support structure uh, what was that like for you when you when you moved to Portugal and started running a business with your husband was that present there was it uh, lacking or did you find it primarily online yeah How did that work? I, well we searched online for sure I, I mean we 
Firstly, we went, I, th I think we went through the YouTubes and obviously this brilliant resource of Creative Live and the, all of the blogs that people were writing. And, you know, um, you, you go through all the masters, you find all of the masters online and you, you research them and you follow their blogs and you work out what they're doing in that moment and, and you try and reach out to them and talk to them and connect with them. Uh, the network here, I would say, we didn't have an awareness of the network here. Um, I'm not going to say that it didn't exist. It's just we weren't part of it here for a very long time. I felt that the ph photography community kept themselves to themselves. They were all doing their own thing in their own bubbles. And there were pockets of them here in Porto, but no nothing was joined up. So I would say as for a, a wider community, we actually met some of our Portuguese photographer friends online in chat rooms on Flickr on Twitter <laughs> and it was like where are you you because you're Portuguese but where exactly are you oh I'm in Porto and it would be like they would just down the road from us <laughs> it's like how crazy we have to meet you online to know where you are and that that was that was really interesting because we really were we we were learning uh, from internationals at the same way that other Portuguese and Porto photographers were Tell me about Porto. What, what kind of what kind of community is it? Oh my gosh! It, this city is like the most beautiful little city, uh, and I say little. It it kind of is, but it's such a big heart. It's untouched. The landscape of it is is like a tear cake when you look at it, and the people there are the most open and generous people that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. If you are you have to have time for everything, obviously. Portuguese, you have to have time. And you walk down the streets and you will find people who will tell you their full life history. They've only just met you, but they will tell you everything. And if you let them, they will bring out the photograph albums of their children. And and as an English person, I would get, oh, you know, my my daughter, she's gone to the UK. She's studying um, to be a doctor over there. Um, and this was like a common story that everybody wants to connect with you and they will find a way of connecting to you, whether it is that you are British, whether it's that you're American, whatever your background is, they will find a way to tell you a story of their life that connects them to you. And you find that everywhere you go in Portugal. And if you have no cultural background, they will talk to you about the food. And even the most grumpiest person, if you talk to them about Portuguese meat or mm -hmm. food or cookies or biscuits, their face, it's like <laughs> suddenly they've opened a Christmas present and they will light up and they will tell you all of their favorite foods. And then they will tell you where to go and get them and, and who you should buy them from and why and how much <laughs> the wealth of information then will just flow and it's it's incredible that this little town has so much heart um, and in a place I think especially now where there's a lot of a lot of the world is shutting down and not being open to receiving people coming in and talking to them and yet Porto is is so the opposite. It's really such an open place. People want you to be there. They want to talk to you. Um, and they, they really want you to love their city as much as they do. 
and they never get tired of telling you this either. There's, there'll be there'll be ladies on the street, and we call them the CCTV cameras because there'll be one on on every window. They'll be there. And they will always have time to talk to you and they will always tell you the history of their house, the history of the street, the history of the town. And it's it's just impossible not to fall in love with Porto mm -hmm. when you've got such pride in in the city. So so what led you to want to start a photo festival in Porto? <laughs> Yeah, I, I've asked myself that a few times now. <laughs> But the, the festival came about because essentially all of these online courses that we were learning, we thought we would take that idea and bring a few of our, our friends over. And we brought about 10 photographers over for what was the Porto Photo, Fest, uh, Porto Photo experience where they had just a weekend. I think it was perhaps four days here. And we took them around Porto um, with models, hair, makeup, and we wanted to see what they thought of Porto and what they saw in it photographically. And it made us realize that what we learned from this setting of people in an experience, learning from each other, going around the same problem in front of them and solving that in Porto, while they were experiencing the culture and the city for the first time with fresh eyes, watching the light bounce off all of the buildings here and play in the streets, we suddenly realized that there was something far bigger um, and we were watching something far bigger. And actually some, some friends of mine were founders of um, the Toronto um, Photography Festival and we spoke with them and they said, right, you absolutely could start a festival in Porto and it would be an incredible thing to do. And when they said that, I kind of took a step back and went, yeah, that can happen. Mm -hmm. We can do that. We have this UNESCO backdrop, the World Heritage Center at our doorstep. Yeah, why not? And I think as with previous crazy, wonderful ideas I've had, I kind of had that wonderful momentum that carried me through and went, right, so hang on, what would this festival look like? Well, I want everybody to learn. That's that's what I would want. I would want to learn from the masters. So hang on, who do I want to meet? Who do I want to learn from face to face? Who do I want to bring to Porto? And so I sat down and I created this Santa's wish list mm -hmm. of photographers that I would like to bring. And the list was crazy because it had, you know, the, the top photographers. And so I thought to myself, okay, let's start with the biggest name on the list and work my way down from there. Because once I start with the nose and I get okay with that, it's going to be okay. And then I'll get a yes and it'll be, you know, it, it'll feel good. That's good, good logic there. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> And we, we start, actually, I, I was following, um, John Stanmire on Snapchat and he has, uh, he was running his workshop in Tbilisi. I was watching him run these 18 hour crazy days with his students and he was supporting them and refreshing them and going through their images and curating them with them to produce this wonderful story that his students presented at the end of the week. And, One morning, I watched him walk down the street to get coffee. And the coffee was he bought was in the back of this 
little car in the middle of the street and a lady came out of the car she opened the boot and made coffee <laughs> from the boot of her car and I was like he's going to love Porto if he loves coffee he's going to love this place so I took my snapchat in the middle of Porto inside I think it was next to a coffee house and I, I kind of positioned it getting myself ready, pressed the record button and said, hi, John, I know you're in Tbilisi and I know that you love coffee, but I think you're going to love Porto. Would you like to come here and run a workshop? And I pressed send before I could stop myself. <laughs> and I, I couldn't believe it. He responded to me straight away with, here is my email address. I'd love to hear more. My jaw was on the floor. I think I probably screamed for a little while I'm sorry to those around me and it was it was an incredible moment for me and it was probably the turning point of everything that happened because that gave me the momentum to to go to the next photographer on my list and you know the, when you've got names on that list John Stanmire followed by David Nightingale and I'm on Skype with David Nightingale after he very kindly agreed to speak with me and he says to me so, Anna, of course, I'd love to go. Um, who else is on your list? Yeah, of course. And I'm That's looking always down a question. <laughs> I know, and I'm looking down on my list, and I'm like, but you're the top names on this <laughs> list. And I'm talking to you, and Philippe's kicking me under the, the table to say, get it together, get it together. <laughs> Completely starstruck moment as I, as I carry on talking to him. But he so graciously just ignored my complete blunder and allowed me uh, to continue and get myself together. And he, you know, the level of support that he instantly gave and he said, I'd love to come. I've never been to Porto. I can come and run uh, all of my workshops, black and white photography, shoot the streets, shoot the city, creating dramatic images. Mm -hmm. There's a place in Porto for those. When can I come? Um, I think that was the most astonishing um, thing was, you know, the, the level of response back from these these photographers was so generous. And when you've been following, you know, Chromasia blog for so many years, it, yeah. it was just brilliant to have such educators on your side. And, you know, it, that was a... That was the start of a pattern, you know. Penny de la Santos, I skyped her. One of my favourites. She's, she's I, just yes. a joy. Oh. It was, it was honestly so delicious that she she skyped with me and she heard me out and then said, "Right, how would you like this to look? What can I do with you? How can we make this work?" Can I come and do food stories there? What's the culture like? How does that work? Can we run a four-day workshop so that our students are out experiencing the, the culture of food and getting their stories? And this is how the she was building the workshop up around what was here with me. And it was incredible to think that that workshop was built exclusively for Porto. I couldn't believe it. So not only are they coming, they're, they're building these workshops exclusively for what is here. Um, so that was, that was, I was, I was blown away by that interaction. Uh, uh, but I, I have to say that as the response you're getting is wonderful, right? You're getting these yeses, you know, you've been fearing no, but yeah. then, but then it goes, oh crap, these people are saying yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they're going to come here. Oh my God, what what am I going to do? So, and you've never done this before, right? So, so was there a sort yeah. of a moment of panic where you realize, oh my God, I really have to put this together, 
And yeah. what do I have to figure out next? So that, that moment where I had already phoned my boss in London mm-hmm. and resigned and then sat on that doorstep. Right. That was a similar moment, <laughs> if, not, if not worse, many years later with me sat on the doorstep of my house here crying because everybody has said yes to me. And now I have to make this thing work. And I'm realizing that I haven't run a festival before. And we are actually going to do this because all of the photographers are on board. Now I need to find people who can support this, help me and build this and make this the most wonderful festival there is. And that was a moment where I completely broke down and went, what have I done? Uh, of all the crazy ideas I've had, this is the biggest, the most ambitious, and that is saying something. Yes. But that's exciting. <laughs> it's also terrifying. I feel very much like the last, well, we started organizing this back in last July. This last year has been the biggest roller coaster ride I've ever been on. It has been the biggest learning curve I've ever been on. And it has also enabled me to feel the most love and support that I've ever received from not just the photographers, but from the extension of those that are volunteering, those that are pitching in, those that are telling me how, how to make this thing work, how to, to support and make, make the whole thing. It has become a family festival with everybody that has poured their passion into it. It is, it is a totally big family event now. You know, what I love about your story is that you know, th- this moment that you're experiencing right now, because you're still in the middle of, you know, all of this coming together, <laughs> right? Of the crazy. But, but it's so it's so different from the moment that you described earlier when you're in that office in that insurance company where basically dreams went to die. And, <laughs> and now you're in the midst of something that is much bigger than you that in some ways can be unpredictable where you don't know exactly how it's, everything is going to play out. But even though you're, you know, you're, you're taking risk, you're being challenged, you have moments of, you know, I'm sure utter desperation and then on the extreme end of it, <laughs> absolute utter joy that you, you're living a life that I think you never would have experienced had you just stayed in that office where you could reliably expect what each day would be after the next you. Do you ever give thought to that about, you know, the the leap that you've taken now as compared to where you were to where you are now? Gosh, I don't think I had. Yeah, but you're you're totally right. It's um yeah. Cuz a lot of people want to want to do that and are never able to. I think it's just it's wonderful to to hear someone who's who's doing it and despite, you know, there being moments where there may be fear and anxiety that you just that you're just going for it. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I actually I hadn't I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms. I think um, this I often say of my insurance days that they were my grade jumper days, and that I then ran away and joined the circus. <laughs> um, and I think that's you know that's probably as accurate as description as you could possibly have. And yeah, I and. Mean, Looking at how things have panned out now, I don't think you could get a bigger roller coaster ride. That's for sure. Yeah, for for all of its ups and downs, it's it's certainly it's riding it. That's yeah. for sure. 
So, so for people who are hearing about this and they go, well, you know, there are a lot of, I've heard a lot of photo festivals, a lot of workshops. What's, what's, what do you think makes this particular festival unique? What makes it special enough that people should consider doing this as opposed to something else? I've always said that this, this isn't going to be a trade show. This is going to respect the, the nature of Porto. This is a family festival. It's built on love. It's built from photographers to photographers. And I've always made sure that everybody who comes, everybody who's a teacher, not only do they have to be the best in their profession as a photographer, but they also have to be the best educators. You can't Google this content. It isn't something you're going to find on the internet. And it's building a community. It's you're coming to have this experience. And you can't experience Porto anywhere else in the world. You might be able to see these photographers, but you cannot experience them, their insight, and the stories unless you're here. And that's what we are building. This is this is the unique part about Porto Photo Fest. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> uh, so when are the dates that's actually happening? It's going to be from September the 11th to the 17th. So it's one full week um, where we have workshops and then masterclasses in the evenings, should you wish to attend just the masterclasses or just the workshops. Okay. And where, and where can people go to find out more about, about that? Portofotofest.com. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I'm, I knew that you would ask this question. And I have to say that I have recently discovered a lot about um, Porto and Portugal photographers. I have a I have a name and I'm desperately trying to I'm, I'm going to have to spell it after this I'm sure okay. but he but he, you can see him on Instagram and it's uh, it's Zin Hosantush Photography now this wonderful gentleman uh, is a street photographer of Porto and he is the most wonderful artist even though I know that he will hate me for saying that. <laughs> but he really is. His, his insight, his nature, and his absolute humbleness and proud belief in his city really shine through his Instagram posts. Um, so I, I have to highlight him. He's Jose Manuel Santos, but you can find him on Instagram at uh, Zin Hoj Santos Photography. And I'll spell that. It's Z-I-N-H... O-S-A-N-T-O-S Photography. Oh, I look forward. A little bit of Insta Instagram love, I'm sure. Oh, I, lo oh, I look forward <laughs> to checking it out. Well, thank you so much for making the time with us today, Anna. It was a real joy to, to sit down and talk with you. Oh, no, it was completely my privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us and to Anna for sharing her time and her story. To find out more about the Porto Photo Festival, visit portophotofest.com. And thanks to all of you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. 
Thanks to Annabelle Henderson for your kind words and your five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash thecandorframe, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the Candor Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the Candid Frame website or in the show notes. Thanks to Eric Seymour for his recent contribution. It really helps. Thank you. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame. Thank you.